Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and here with a just an, an A-list musician that I was very excited to uh, secure some time with. A uh, really great guy, too, and he's doing some things that are going to help entertain people, as he always says, but he's also doing some things that are going to help people, and I'm very excited to talk to him about all of that. Uh, interestingly, we talk about his uh, one gig playing Jesus Christ Superstar as a drummer, and it was kind of a last-minute thing, and I dig into this a little bit because that show was just such a huge influence for me in my life since I was a very, very young child, and uh, so any anybody that worked on it, I'm always very excited to hear a little bit of the details on it. Uh, but he's he's done so much amazing work. And out of the thousands and thousands of gigs that he's played, that's the one that I, I tend to to zero in on. Uh, but I've gotten the uh, I've had the opportunity to see him twice perform with Uriah Heep and, here in Las Vegas. And they were just such phenomenal shows. It's uh, it's interesting. The uh, timing of all of this is Lee Kerslake, his predecessor in Uriah Heep, just recently passed away. And uh, watching the band play with him he just fits right in he's found uh his sound within the band he's uh really helpful with the writing side of things as we're going to find out and just a, a great addition to the band and you would think that it would be hard to fill the shoes of a guy like that who had such a unique and personal sound as most drummers really don't have their own sound um there are a few that do and lee kerslake was definitely one of them but i would also say that russell gilbrook easily has a sound that's his and uh, he's a Peisty artist, and we all know that Peisty are my favorite cymbals. And so we're going to talk about his new drum set, his cymbals, his uh, setup, all that good stuff, and uh, really dig into what's going on in his world. So if you're not listening to this sequentially with the other episode that I released this week with Serenity Star Foreman, then uh, I'll just give you a quick update. Uh, the, the new album Entranced is coming along very well working on a, a new song for that uh, this weekend. And then uh, the Uriah Heap podcast is on schedule to release these review episodes starting on November 3rd, which I'm very, very excited about. That is also already available on multiple podcast platforms. Um, the uh, welcoming episode is already available as well. I had to do that to get the RSS feed going. So you can already go and follow the podcast on any of those. There's also a Facebook page for Uriah Heap, The Magician's Podcast. And we're also on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And you can go to my website, www.scotthaskin.com and click on the Uriah Heap podcast link. And that also takes you to all of those links and all that great stuff. So, uh, you know, I was just so excited to get some time with Russell and he's such a dynamic guy and really kind and just a lot of fun to talk to. And I really am excited to bring this interview to you guys. So I'm going to quit talking about myself and just bring you Russell. Here he is. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a wonderful guest in this doubleheader podcast episode week for you. I have the fantastic Russell Gilbrook, the drummer uh, currently playing with Uriah Heap while they're on hold and doing many other things to keep himself busy and help people and keep them entertained during the quarantine. Let's welcome him to the show. Russell, how are you doing today? Scott, thank you very much for inviting me on the show and I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. I'm so excited to talk to you because you've got so many great things going on. You're not one of those people that's just like, well, we're in lockdown. I can't do anything at all. I'll just sit here and look out the window. But you're kind of in a in a tough position because you guys, as Uriah Heap, hit the 50th anniversary. You had all this great stuff planned and then you couldn't do any of it because of the pandemic. How how was that uh, just to, to deal with that alone? 
Well, I mean, it was soul-destroying, really, for the, the whole band, the crew. I mean, everybody concerned, promoters, fans all over the world. You know, we worked hard to try and put, you know, what we wanted to put, something very special for the 50th, as you would do. And, um, you know, this COVID hit hard and it's destroyed, for the moment, um, you know, our touring. So everything being put our 50th can't be the 50th. It may be three or four years later, we have to celebrate the 50th, which is, which is a bit of a, a shame. But what can we do? We can't do anything. Exactly. But you're going to keep the plans. You're just going to move them to a later date. Oh, definitely. The plans will be there. What Exactly what we said we were going to do will definitely happen. Uh, we just hope that it happens sooner rather than later. Excellent. Well, before we get into the, the current stuff that you've got going on, I just have a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about that I found very interesting. Um, you you just kind of rush subbed in as a drummer uh, at 12 years old playing on Jesus Christ Superstar in the in the live setting. In, in when you look at the the sheet music for the drums for that, it seems kind of insane that anyone would just be able to jump in and play that without really, you know, getting to know it. Uh, but especially at twelve years old, that's pretty amazing. How did how did you uh, did you just feel like I'm comfortable, I've got it, and jump in, or what? Did you study it more than I thought you did? No, what it was is you know apparently I was born playing the drums and. Uh, Luckily for me, in the town of Hornchurch in Essex, in England, um, probably the best drum teacher in England, happened to live in the same town. And I uh, went to him for lessons. Um, and he was such a great teacher, and I was obviously such a great <laughs> student at the time, that it didn't mean anything for me from the age of six to... I had, I had lessons with someone else from four to six, but with Bob, I um, went from six to uh, 14. And he literally taught me everything. And uh, obviously reading was amongst that. But because, uh, as I said, I feel as though I was born playing the drums, I took to it like duck to water. So reading was never, never an issue with me. So at, by the time I'd got to 12, I literally could just read like someone reads from a book. So I wasn't phased about anything at all and as a as a kid you don't get freaked out because you can't really think of the problems that grown-ups do grown-ups always try and analyze what might go wrong and when this might happen and anxiety and this that and the other as a kid you don't get that so i just literally opened the open the pages and did it wow because that's that's not a simple soundtrack i mean even as a drummer there's a lot going on no no, I couldn't do it now. <laughs> I, I, my, my reading's really rusty now. I haven't had to read music properly for 15, 20 years. And when I do sessions, people either want my playing, so I do my own cheat sheets, or if there is kind of uh, some sort of uh, skeleton um, drum parts to do in sessions uh, or what have you, I, I could just you know make my own cheat sheets up and get through that way rather than... Um, proper reading because I, I, if you don't keep things like that up you can get a bit rusty on it oh exactly yeah it's like a foreign language if you don't speak that language from time to time it starts to fizzle away yeah exactly yeah well how did the actual performances go were, were you able to to just uh, get in and do them were there any challenges that arose um you you mean on that particular show or do you mean on superstar yeah i only did one depth. i only did one depth. Oh wow! Okay, it was literally because 
it was literally because uh, all the calls went out because the drummer couldn't do it. All the calls went out to get a debt and no one could do it. And when they called my teacher up, he couldn't do it because he used to do uh, debt uh, work in the, show, in the shows in the West End. Um, he obviously put my name forward because I was his star student. And as, as I said, when we went, went up there, it was a um, matinee performance. And when we went up there, um, I only had about an hour before curtain because it was a bit rushed. And the guy started talking to my dad at the bar. And after about five minutes, ten minutes, my dad had to stop him and say, hang on a minute, you keep, you're talking to me like I'm the drummer. He said, well, you are, aren't you? I said, no, he is. Pointing coke, <laughs> Just sitting down there, tiny I was, tiny little kid. And the guy needed an heart attack on the spot. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. I love it. And I, I but you know, see, when, that's... When you, uh, when you, when you uh, actually have a, a great teacher and and because I was really good as a kid, the confidence is there, um, it really, it really just didn't faze me at all. Well, and I think it proves your point about the way that adults look at things versus the way children look at things. So, you know, had you been offered that gig at maybe 30 or 31, it might have been a little bit more daunting of a task. Well, it certainly could have been, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's all about, you know, the, the music business. I got taught by my drum teacher that, that, uh, a couple of fantastic lessons. He said, the last lesson I had with him, he actually turned around and said, when that phone rings, you've only got one answer, and it should be yes. He said, you can't say, oh, no, oh, oh I can't do that session because I can't read well enough. Oh, I can't do, I can't do that gig because I don't play double bass drum. Oh, I can't do that one because I don't know enough uh, Latin or, you know, I don't play jazz can't be saying that. He said, you know, if you want to be a professional musician, you've got to have a well-rounded game and you say yes to every gig. Right. And you've got to be able to nail every gig. And uh, that, that, that's how it came about. So if you uh, um, take care of what you're supposed to do, the ingredients of playing a musical instrument, really nothing should phase you at any age. It's just that if you have a bit of a gap where you're not doing a certain thing, like I haven't played jazz for 25 years now, and you know, I've lost that touch on jazz because I've got mortgages to pay and kids to feed, and and my gig is, is playing rock at the moment. But I still have an, a, a jazz element in there because it's part of my schooling. And if you have that whole rounded, you've got a bit of Latin, you've got a bit of jazz, you've got a bit of rock, it can fuse itself in your own playing. Hopefully, makes you more musical and makes you more individual. Well, and it certainly makes sense, too. And those skills transfer because even in Uriah Heap, there's some jazzy parts that you have to play from time to time. So it's like you can draw on that experience as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, Easy Living's a double-handed shuffle. You'd have been horrified at the auditions, the amount of drummers that can't play the double-handed shuffle because uh, for right-handed players, the left hand's so weak, he can't play the double stroke that nicely, forcefully, for that length of time. Um, at all, and they were falling down like the soldiers when they were um, going for the audition. And um, of course, yeah, yes, it stood being good stead. And also, the first album I did, Wake the Sleepers, a track on there called Tears of the World. And the middle bit, again, it's, it's another shuffle, not a double handed one, but it's another shuffle. The middle bit, they weren't sure uh, what they wanted to do something different rhythmically, and they weren't sure what to do. And I put my hand up, I've only been in the band three weeks. I put my hand up and said, Well, might then we turn it into a, an Afro-Cuban 6-8? And there was silence for about 10 seconds. And he looked at me and went, oh, what? I went, an Afro-Cuban 6-8? What the bloody hell is that? So I played it, 
and absolutely loved it, and it's on the album. So I'm playing an Afro-Cuban 6-8 in the middle part of Tears of the World, um, which on a classic in a classic rock setting. So that's what I'm saying about fusing. You know, you've got to love to play the drums, not love rock or love funk. You've got to love everything, because you never know when you might need that rhythmical phrase or group. Exactly, and that's one of the things that's really important when you're choosing a, a new band member it's not just whether they can play the songs or play in the style that you're playing in. It's what else they bring to the table, their history, their elements, their influences. And obviously, you know, choosing you made a big difference. Yeah, it was uh, it's exactly. I mean, when it came about, um, I, I had, you know, you had two minds because I was brought up to be a professional. Um, you know, you do your job. You don't make a fuss. You, you never get anywhere in the session world. It doesn't matter whether it's a good part, bad part. If they want to, uh, can you play that with one hand tied behind your back, drink water, and just play the bass drum? If they're paying you, that's what you do. Right. So you learn to shut up and get on with it. That's what's the job of a professional. But um, of course, there comes a time when I, I said, okay, the the auditions here now. Do I become a clone of Lee Kerslake because they've had him playing for thirty seven years or whatever it was? Is this my opportunity to respect the obvious drum parts of what to play, use my professional head, and then impart my personality? And I decided, no, it's my time. I don't want to live in a, the shadows of someone else. It's, I've got something off there. I either like it or they don't. And luckily for me, the band loved it. And secondly, all the fans love it. That helped me as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've seen you guys perform a couple of times in, in recent years here in Las Vegas. And I really felt that listening to you play his parts, I really felt that you were respectful of them, but yet you played it as you would play it. So there's that balance of, I'm going to put a little bit of my touch on it, but I'm also respectful to what people expect the song to sound like. Yeah, because when you're you know, um, a really good professional player, you don't play the idiot's version you don't be a fool you don't use not use your ears right you understand that you know all great players will play a very similar pattern because it's obvious to a great player to play that pattern for that song the fills might be different but you know that's the whole idea it's only the idiots that uh end up not really playing for the song and um uh, so therefore they struggle in their professional career usually so Yes, it was pretty obvious to me that what stayed stayed and what I could embellish, I embellished. Exactly. Well, you brought up uh, the shuffle. So that reminded me of a question. When I was talking to Mick Box last month, uh, we were talking about the song um, Dreams of Yesteryear. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was telling me that originally that was a shuffle. Yeah, well, what usually the, the usual thing that um, tends to happen with the, with the Heap songs is... Um, Quite often, the demos will come in um, and I will actually change the whole rhythm of it because I've just got a very good head for understanding where um, a certain melodical, uh, a, a certain melody phrase and rhythm might suit a better time or, or rhythmical change. And I'm pretty good at doing that. And I've done that to a lot of a lot of tracks that get brought in because obviously when you're writing, they're going to put down just a very bare drum part just to get the song down. And of course, when it opens up to the band, we now got to try and put the band's flavor involved in it all. And of course, you know, no two people are going to hear things the same way. And as a drummer, um, obviously I'm going to be homing in on what I feel 
it is going to serve best for that song rhythm-wise, whether it's double tempo, change it from swing to straight, vice versa, whatever it is. I don't always get it right, but a quite a big high percentage of it, I get it right. So that's what happened on that one. Right, and it's all the mood of the day too. You know, somebody hears something, if they're in a mood that uh, just just harmonizes with that particular thing, then it's going to be inspiring. If they're not in a yeah. receptive mood, then then it's probably going to get rejected just because they're not open to hear it. So a lot of it is the timing. Um, everything else is subjective opinion. I like this pattern better. I like that pattern better. You know, it, it just kind of goes That's how right. it goes in the day. But I find that that song uh, is one of my favorite tracks. And I love especially where you changed to the snare, uh, the buzz rolls at the end, um, just to carry that song out. It was a really beautiful way of ending the album and ending the song. Uh, really great job. That's that's definitely one that stands out to me. Yeah, cheers. I mean, again, I just absolutely adore creativity and expression. And um, it is one of my, um, I suppose I'm lucky, really, that I can I, I tend to hear things like that. Like Wake the Sleeper, um, you know, I instigated the idea for the song Wake the Sleeper when Mick was playing a riff. He was playing that riff uh, completely different. I mean, almost half tempo to what it is now. Oh. And, I, and I just turned around and said, well, hang on a minute. Well, if you speed that up and I put double bass drums in, not only does it introduce me, because obviously they didn't play double bass drums because mm -hmm. I'd had an album out for 10 years, I said, but it could sound really cool. And of course it did. And it's the same thing with um, uh, What Kind of God that's on that album as well. I wanted to play it. The whole song gave that old school military type of snare drum thing. So that's why that's in the verses. And that's why it's very... Um, you know, not a straightforward beat because the song was telling me you, can, you can't just put a straight beat on it. And I love it. I, I love um, um, the songs doing that to me because it's it's forcing me to be creative, which is what I want to do. Exactly. And with somebody who's really creative and certainly somebody that has their finger on the pulse like you do, you can't restrain that. You just have to let it out. It's It's just not in us to not pursue it. That's right. I mean, I'm a, I wouldn't say it's an, I'm a nightmare, but, um, you know, when you're doing pre-production, it's like you could go on forever. No, just try this. We'll change that. Let's do that. There's got to be a cutoff point at some at some point. But um, it's just nice to... And, and sometimes, you know, you have a great idea and you put it down and you go listen to it and it sounds really flat and horrible and then you have to put it to bed or come back to it another time few days later because sometimes you just can't get what you want out of a song it's just the way it goes oh absolutely yeah um now you had mentioned too that uh, easy living was a shuffle that a lot of drummers were not playing right in the auditions i would imagine that they were playing straight quarter notes on the snare and trying to do the shuffle part on the hat oh it was a nightmare i mean yeah they were playing it like a normal um shuffle with the back beats on the snare and not even many ghost notes, which is completely wrong, gives it completely the wrong. That song is just purely about the shuffle that Lee created. The same as Return of Fantasy, which is mm -hmm. even faster, right? They're double-handed shuffles for a reason. They give it that swing. You can't start putting heavy-duty back beats in to a swing song because it or not to that particular one anyway. And of course, as I said, if you haven't got the technique to do it, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do your version and that's where they fell down on. Sure. And I would imagine to, uh, to sustain it for that long, especially return to fantasy, because that's a much longer song than easy living. 
uh, it really takes a lot of uh, arm and wrist strength to be able to sustain playing that because that would be draining on your body. It is. Uh, for anyone out there, drummers who, who are here, it's up 176 BPM that we play it at, right? And it's a double-handed shuffle the whole way through it all with obviously little fills and accents, but always returning to the double-handed shuffle. It's a great exercise in itself if you want to strengthen up your weak side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you seem to be, you know, any picture that I've seen of you, you're in very good shape. So it's obvious that you're very interested in taking care of yourself, which is very important, especially being on the road all the time. But how do you handle that when you're on the road? You're on tour. You don't have your equipment with you. Um, how do you maintain that while you're on the road? The 100% truth is the gigs. You know, I'm not the quietest player, and the, ba- and the band isn't the quietest band. They're, they're really full on, and we create a lot of energy. And I really do play hard uh, for the solid hour and a half, hour 40, whatever we're doing. Um, and because we tend to do a lot of shows, that in itself, a, a long tour, when we went out with Priest, um, you know, just over a year ago now, uh, that was a long tour we did with Judas Priest. And doing that amount of shows, we did 63, 62 shows, I think. Um, that keeps me fit. Yeah. So I that's really what helps me on the road. I don't tend to drink a lot. On days off, I do. We all like to have a nice meal and uh, nice wine on days off because we're treating ourselves because we're working hard and why not. But uh, on gigs, I just can't do it. So I, I very rarely have... Um, any more drink after gigs now because um, I I don't want the shows to suffer at all. And I I prefer to play when I'm fit. Yeah. Well, as you know, and that's the thing is the music is the most important part. And as long as we're, whether it's, you know, you're in the song and you're playing for the song and not for yourself, or you're taking care of yourself so that you can play the show. And that's what being a performer is really all about. Yeah, that's what it should be about. Exactly. And the thing is, it's a slippery road. If, if other things start, taking the number one spot. You know, the number one spot is your performance because uh, um, that always wins a day and, and brings the crowds back in. Exactly. And uh, and I actually saw you guys on that tour with Priest uh, when you were here in Vegas at the joint at the Hard Rock Hotel, and it was a fantastic show. Just the energy that you guys have on stage, uh, it's just amazing. It, it's You're playing the songs, whether they're happy songs or sad songs, but you you all just seem to be enjoying being there on the stage performing so much that that, I think, is more powerful to me than even the music. Yeah, I mean, that we get told that all the time. That's what makes us win the day all the time. Whenever we, we love doing festivals because you've got an immediate reference at festival. You've just seen that band, now you're seeing that band, now you're seeing that band. You've got a reference on performance, energy level, um, all, of, all of the ingredients that make fans like bands. And... Uh, uh, we, we always win the day with everybody. They always turn around and say, my God, you guys look like you're having so much fun and the energy is amazing. Well, they're the two most important ingredients for the fans to keep coming back and watching your shows. Yep. And you guys have it absolutely nailed. Nailed. Um, just a couple more questions before we get to your current stuff. Um, you, if, if I read this right, and, and I know a lot of the stuff that's the information that's out there is not accurate, so I want to ask you, uh, you were in a band called Bedlam, but you replaced Cozy Powell in that band. Yeah, well, what happened when, when poor Cozy died, bless him, they had a, a, a tribute um, for him up in Buxton, which is like a north part of uh, the UK. Um, and, um, you know, I can't... I, I, someone 
someone, I don't even know 100%, someone gave the promoter of that um, benefit gig my number because I had quite a big name in the rock, as being a rock drummer anyway. Um, and they put me in Bedlam. And so the first time I met Denny, uh, Denny Ball, Frank, the singer, um, Pete Ball, his brother, who sadly died now, um, I met them up at, at a rehearsal studio called John Emery's. Um, and Frank, actually, the singer, had never sung since Cozy died. So oh, he wow. hadn't sung, in fact, since the, since the band left. And he got an amazing voice in Bedlam, but it really lost, you know, when Cozy left, they felt that that was the end of it. Um, and they wanted to do this uh, tribute for him. So I was put in there and we went up and did the rehearsals. As I said, Frank wasn't very keen. And of course, they heard me play a couple of couple of songs and they went raving mad, absolutely adored it. So I did, I did a couple of little gigs with them. We were supposed to do an album, but for whatever reasons, uh, it hadn't. Um, happened, but yeah, that was a uh, very enjoyable to do that and to obviously, you know, play some songs that Cozy played on. Yeah, well, even even with all the experience that you had up to that point and up to the point when you joined Uriah Heap, you're taking over for some very legendary drummers in their own right. Uh, even with your level of professionalism, was there any element of nervousness in in being in their shadow or anything? No, I'll tell you what. Nerves don't come into it. Where um, my confidence level as a as a player and a person is so, it's it's almost like I've I've grown up and all my sort of experience and confidence has grown up with me, and I haven't even noticed it being there. So when I go to do something, I never ever, I don't get nervous at gigs. I just get excited and. An opportunity, I, I start smiling because I know I'm going to get that opportunity and win the day because of I know what I've got something that people want to hear and see. I'm a very visual player. I know that I, people like my playing and um, all I need is the opportunity to do it and I win the day, hence the Bedlam and hence uh, Uriah Heap and quite a few other bits and pieces that I've done in the past. Sure. And you've played with some wonderful players. I imagine that that playing with guys like Tony, Tony Iommi and Lonnie Donegan, like just getting those opportunities probably really helped build your confidence a lot too because you're playing with, I mean, you're playing with some of the best known musicians in the world. Yeah, and every single one uh, I've learned something from and that's the important thing. You learn what you need to learn from great players and people like that. Um, and take it on board, and all that does is feed what you've already got. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. So with the 50th anniversary of Uriah Heap this month, um, and, and happy anniversary to you guys, I wish we could celebrate it a little bit better, but we'll get there. Um, yeah. British Drum Company is making you a special drum kit for the anniversary. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I was literally up a couple of weeks ago going through the sizes, uh, the finish on it and two two very special um, snare drums that um, no one will be able to ever get. They're only made for me. And I'm very excited for uh, not only to see it and to play it, to get it out there so people can see it and hear it as well. It's a phenomenal company. The, guy, the guys um, 
is so fanatical about how he makes drums and they sound wonderful. So I'm very happy and excited. Yeah. Well, and, and having seen you live and having heard the albums that you've played on, uh, you certainly can't argue with the sound. It's phenomenal. But I wanted to mm. ask you, do you use uh, different sizes in the studio versus when you're on the road? No, same kit. Exactly the same kit. Because it, you're, it, you're using larger bass drums. Are those 26s? They're actually 24s. I'm actually going down. So oh. they were 24. They were 24, two 24 by 16s. And I had a 13 by 9 Tom, 14 by 10 Tom, two 16 floor Toms like Cozy Powell, a 22 by 14 gong drum, and 14 six and a half snare. But now the new kit is two 22 by 14 bass drums. Then the two Toms are now both nine inches deep because I want it to look nicer, but 13 and 14. Two 16 floors, still the same 22 14 gong and two 14 six and a half snare drums. That is a monster kit. Definitely yeah, a monster. I'm looking it. forward to hearing this. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> uh, so how did you uh, connect with British Drum Company in the first place? Well, I was getting a bit despondent with drum companies. I've gone through uh, a few since I actually left Mapex Drums that I helped build up in the, in the UK for many years. And um, uh, the last company... I got very fed up with was Natal. I was with Natal, but at that time they weren't really making good shells. They are a lot better now, but at the time they weren't making good shells and it just wasn't good enough uh, for, for, for what I wanted at all. And um, I'd been watching British Drum Company and they'd been getting better and bigger and better and bigger. So I just contacted them and said, look, I'm in a bit of a pickle here. I need a kit that's going to look good, but mostly I need a kit that sounds amazing. So we had a chat, and there we are. We I joined. I love it. They they do really have a great sound to them. I think you've landed in a in a good spot. Uh, but you're also a Peisty artist, and and I'm a huge fan of Peisty cymbals. I love the 2002 series. I think it just has such a great sound. You're playing a lot of the 900 series, which also sound phenomenal. Uh, how did you land with them? Ha <laughs> do, do, <laughs> do you want the uh, funny story? Yeah. Go on then. I'll tell you a funny story. Right? I was with Zildjian for quite a few years before. And we always have a Zildjian day in England where all the Zildjian artists who are not on tour, they go up there and do a Zildjian day. And everyone has a chat and a drink and blah, 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 blah. So I went up there and I had a few too many wines and they had um, a ride symbol in there that was a prototype. And I absolutely adored it. It had the characteristics that I wanted out of a ride symbol. And I got a bit drunk and I said to a couple of drumming buddies, I said, uh, I'm going to nick that cymbal. <laughs> what? I said, I'm going to nick the prototype for a laugh. Let's see, how, let's see how long it takes him to find out I've nicked it. Well, anyway, I did. And I got a phone call two days later from um, Tina, who used to work for Zildjian, saying, Russell, have you got... And I started laughing. I always used to have a laugh and joke with him. And I started laughing about it. And she said, no, that's serious. The, the American guys were over at the Zildjian day, and they are not happy at all. And I went, oh, don't be silly. I said, well, you know, I mean, what happens if Keith Moon is still being alive? I said, what happens if Keith Moon is still being alive? I said, he'd have, he'd have taken the 28 symbols and had a, you know, it's rock and roll, you know, I'm not going to show it to anybody or do anything. God almighty, it's just a, a bit of a laugh. Well, anyway, I got a letter in the post. Uh, 
saying that my services are no longer required. So <laughs> I, uh, I made a phone call to Pasty, and Pasty said, oh, we'll have you. Damn right, we'll have you. So I went and signed to them. Wow, that is so uptight for a company that makes rock instruments. Well, there you go. I thought, you know, rock and roll business, it can be a bit wacky. You know, us um, artists are a little bit um, Larry. And, and you, if you see me play, as you say, you have, I am quite a Larry guy. I would never um, disrespect a company. I'd never show a prototype to another company or do anything bad like that. All it was was a flipping laugh. But obviously, the uh, the boys didn't think so. Well, see, and now a smart marketer for them would have come back in and said, look, he just could not wait to hit that symbol. He wanted to hear our symbol so bad that he just had to go and hit it on his own and turn that into, yeah. you know, something that, that could benefit them. And instead, they lost a great artist off of their roster. Well, there you go. Sometimes people see people differently, and perhaps I wasn't a great enough artist to be lost. So there we go. <laughs> well, I, then they then they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty obvious. Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing the new kit. I, I love the cymbal sounds that you that uh, that you get, especially uh, on stage. They really cut through very well. Um, obviously, your engineer has some element to do with that, but uh, but they they're really very great sounding cymbals. Um, so that's, uh, that's definitely a good thing to, when you're able to go on the road, are you going to be using that kit in the, the, uh, recording the new album? Well, if it's made in time, yes. I mean, we're supposed to be going in early next year to record the album, but because of the COVID thing and because of the way in which it's affected all businesses, we don't know that the recording contract, um, is going to be delayed or the ingredients in the contract are going to work in time for us to do all this. So, um, who knows? I'm hoping that the kit will be ready, but um, when we go in to record, I have no idea. Yeah, well, certainly by the time you hit the road anyway. Hopefully. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So while uh, while everything's kind of on hold, I know that uh, Mick and Phil are starting work on the, on the new album, uh, but you're also writing some new songs with Simon Pinto. How's that going? Absolutely fantastic. I can't believe it. In fact, I'm, I've surprised myself with the amount of um, ideas that I had. And the good thing about Simon, I've known Simon for about 25 years, and he's a very good drummer as well as guitarist and songwriter and everything. And he understands me as a person and a player. And so it's very easy for me to... All I did is I sat down, I spent a whole day with him, and I said, right, what I did is I did the research, Scott. What I did is I, I wanted to go back and listen to a lot of old heap stuff, listen to some UI heap forums, listen to what the fans liked mostly from what songs, from what albums, and then take all of those ingredients. And then I sat down with Cy and I said, right, we've got to have a bit of this, a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of this, listen to this, listen to that. Um, now, these are the grooves I've got. This is the kind of thing we want. And basically all of that. And... We just hit it off. What can I say? You know, it was absolutely fantastic and got 20 tracks written. So, wow. Yeah. That's a mental. lot. So, how, how are you guys doing this with uh, distancing? Are you able to be in the same room? Are you recording or are you writing yeah. uh, apart from each other? What are you doing? No, I go over to his house. He's got a recording studio in his house because he writes a lot of library music okay. for, uh, all around world and stuff so he's got a, a recording thing set up in his house so i just travel over there 45 minutes up the road i travel over there um and 
he'll present me some ideas of what I've told him. I'll then give him some new ideas or we'll work on some ideas that have been sent over and I've gone back to change things and work on lyrics here or do that or do that. So, And it's just one of those things where he's brought the best out of me and I've brought the best out of him. And it seems to be, blimey, that sounds really heapy, but a little bit, obviously it's going to be heapy, but with my personality. So it's going to have a different slant on to make them feel because their personalities are different. Sure. So, you know, but to, to, to what extent um, the tracks go, we, but all the tracks are going to come in, obviously, in, in the pot. And then during pre-production, we'll probably just decide, you know, obviously decide the favourable tracks to use uh, because we need the album. Living a Dream went down very well. We need the album to be as good or if not better because you've got to keep moving. You can't, it's no good coming out with a bad album. It's no good. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, and uh, boy, you've you've set the bar high with living the dream. So I'm really excited to hear what you guys have got. Uh, do you have a have you kind of uh, scheduled a release date or is everything still kind of up in the air at this point? It's literally up in the air. We've got to get contracts sorted out first. Once that's OK, we can then start, um, you know, uh, trying to book appropriate rehearsals and stuff to get uh, pre-production in and then in the album, to do the album. Right, right. Well, this is this is going to be wonderful. I, I can't wait to see what you guys have come up with in this collaboration. No, I can't wait. I mean, the thing, <laughs> that's the thing with songwriting as well. Don't forget, it's my first contribution. And, mm-hmm. and where, when you write, um, you're so close to home with the songs, it's hard to get that third perspective. So yeah. it will be... That's, that's the time I will be slightly nervous presenting these songs because I don't know what the guys are going to say. I certainly won't be offended if they don't like them because um, if they don't want to use any of them, I'll just do a solo album anyway. So sure. I like the song good enough to do a solo album, but I have written everything with old school heat, with lots of playing because we're all good players and I feel as though we should show off our playing a little bit more. Um and with fantastic choruses. I mean, to me, that's that's the whole essence of what we're trying to do. Exactly. Have you thought about bringing in a producer? Yes, I think we definitely want to use Jay again because he was fantastic with Living the Dream. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the for production sure. Production is phenomenal. You know, and the uh, he, the drum sound was fantastic. He just let me. I said, what do you want to do with the drum sound? He said, it's it first. I hit it. He said, nothing. I said, what, not even on the third drum? He said, no. He said, you chew them well, you hit them well. He said, job done. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know what you're doing by now, I think you're kind of in trouble, but you hey, seem to be doing you'll well. You'll be, be surprised with some engineers and producers. Uh, you know, they've got, this, they've got this sound in their head and you can't move them from it. And that's not what music is. They, you know, if you keep going for the same sound, then everyone's going to sound like everyone, aren't they? You've got to be open for... You know, I don't. I you can hear Cozy Powell, you can hear Ian Pace, you can hear John Bonham, you can hear Billy Bill Ward. You know, you can hear Steve Gadd, you can hear Jeff Beccaro. Well, that's what we want. We want to hear the personality and their drum sound come out. We don't want me to sound like the guy from Alterbridge and the, and the guy from um, Hailstorm. You know, we don't want that. We want individuality back. But Russell, I've got my daisy chain of plugins that are going to make you sound great. Don't you just want me to plug you into that? I know, I know. <laughs> Don't get me started on it. I mean, the man, I, honestly, I have had my fair share of rows with not only live sound engineers but recording engineers, 
um, quite a quite a bit rowing with them over drums. For some reason, sometimes they just want to have a quick fix. They either want a quick fix uh, because they can't be bothered, or they try and give you a bass drum snare drum mix with no toms. What's that all about? You created a dynamic. I'm not playing. I create the dynamics. You balance everything on the same level and allow me to be musical on my drums. But, you know, my job as an in, as an engineer is to capture your sound. My job as a drummer is to create the sound. Correct. Yeah, That's exactly. It. Yeah. OK, so you're also doing one other really cool thing right now. Um, you're giving some very unique drum lessons. And if I understand your approach properly, you're not just saying, you know, here's the syncopation book. Learn that. Here's how to play a shuffle. It's you're really analyzing how the drummer plays and helping them correct you know, various things like posture, hitting technique, because a lot of people do not know how to hit a cymbal properly to make it really project and not break it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the thing is, you know, I understand a lot of teachers go down this one-size-fits-all approach to, to drumming, but I just feel as though, you know, not every drummer that learns the drums is going to get to a great standard. You're going to get to a standard that you as an individual will get to because you're governed on practicing properly, how much time you've got to practice and how much talent you've got. Those you can't get away from that. You can't magically become a great drummer without those three elements being involved at some point. And the best way to do it is everyone can play decent enough drums um, if they were to work on what they can play nearly well now so all you're doing is tweeting what they can nearly play well now what you don't do is teach them things that they can't get the red round because it's a knock-on effect i always see it as a block of flats you've got 20 floors now it's no good starting at floor four you've got to start on the ground floor and it's no good going ground one two five six eight no because if you miss one out it's going to bite you in the backside somewhere along the line. You've got to have that smooth transition where um, you're working on the correct things for the right reasons, allocating enough time to it so that you can just tweet the improvement. And then that acts like a snowball. Once you tweet this, that works better for that. And then suddenly that works better for that. And then you're on, on your way doing it. But too many people... Uh, and looking at the wrong drummers and thinking they got to do left foot, left foot, bloody clave, right? Speed metal feet and everything. Well, hang on a minute. Do you want to be in a speed metal band, a Latin band, or do you want to be a, a drummer? If you want to be a drummer, you've got to have the all-round game. You haven't got to be a, um, a a master of one style at all. I just happen to be falling into Uriah Heep. Everyone, everyone, don't, hardly anyone knows me about the jazz playing mm -hmm. because of the, the profile I've picked up with heat, but that doesn't mean to say I don't know how to play it. It doesn't mean to say I haven't got those touches and those feels, but you've got to look at your playing, look where you nearly can play that, or practice that. Right, exactly, and, and you're right. It, like I was really glad when I first started drumming that I had a teacher that sat me down and taught me all of the rudiments. It was when I was in elementary school, and he actually booked extra time with me uh, he was retiring, so he wasn't going to be with me the next year. And he goes, you have a lot of potential. I really want you to get a solid foundation. And he actually got permission from the principal to book extra uh, lessons with me so we could go out through all the rudiments. Had I not learned right. those, I don't think anything that I did after would have been 
uh, is easy to build on if I didn't have that very foundation. That's that's that's, that's correct. Now the thing is, you've just uh, hit something there that I, you know I'm I'm probably at the moment the only <laughs> the only European drummer that doesn't agree with Budapest. Really, and uh, I'll tell you why as well. I'll tell you exactly why. It's not that I. Um, don't actually agree with rudiments. I feel as though the problem is with rudiments. Let's just say there's 47. I don't know how many there are now because they're bringing out bloody new ones all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, let's just say, well, the, the original ones I learned because I did. I, I went. Uh, I had all the rudiments shown to me with the American twenty, the 26 American rudiments. Right. That's all there was back then that I got taught. Same here. Yeah. Yes. And. Um, when I reached, you know, I don't know, 20, 21, obviously I was doing a lot of professional work. I was still growing as a musician, but I suddenly had a bit of time off. I wasn't doing anything and I was doing a lot of practicing. I wanted to up my game even more. Um, and I had almost a light bulb uh, moment that hit me. And what that light bulb moment was, I, I was looking at, the rudiments, funny enough. And I'd heard all these drummers that, you know, still struggling to play paradiddles properly. They still can't do that, the flam paradiddles. They still can't do that, you know, not quite do that problem. Not quite. And I came to realise, and it worked for me, which is why I tell everybody this. I said, hang on a minute. I'll tell you why you can't do it very well, shall I? And they went, why? I said, well, this is the there's 26 rudiments, right? Well, how much practice do you do? And they say they, they do an hour, right? So how much practice are you devoting to each rudiment? And, you know, they're a little bit like, well, not a lot because I can't do them. Right, okay, so when something's hard, people stop doing it. Right. That's also, they don't want to just do the rudiments. They want to play their groove. They want to do the next lick. They want to learn that Steve Gadd thing you know, the latest thing out or whatever it might be. So, and this is what I was saying about the best way to teach, in my opinion. So you're prioritising things all wrong with not enough time. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, you've got 26 movements you said you want to learn. Then you've got the grooves you want to learn. Then the feels you want to learn. I said, then you want to play. And then you want to play the, your favourite song. I said, well, how are you going to feel all that in an hour? I said, I'll tell you the secret, shall I? I said, what's that? I said, the rudiments, 24 of them, throw them in the bin. What? I said, throw him in the bin. What are you talking about? I said, there's only two. There's only two you should ever learn. What's that? The singles and doubles. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? I said, because everything else is a combination of those two. I said, and I'll prove it. A five-stroke roll, two doubles and a single. Mm-hmm. A paradiddle, two singles and a double. A flam, a quiet single and a loud single. Drop me to carry on and go through the whole lot, apart from a buzz roll, of course. We'll keep that separate. Sure. I said, so if you were to concentrate, because your doubles aren't very good, if you were to concentrate on just those two rudiments, that's half an hour on each one, which is a lot of time playing each of those techniques and really got your techniques nicely up with singles and doubles. All you then do is learn the phrase of a five-show role because your doubles are so good. You're going to play it like that. It's going to sound great. So look how time efficient that is. Plus, you don't need to learn the rudiments. And when you play the drums anyway, going from singles to doubles, you're going to be playing all those rudiments, but not having to think about it. Right, that's true. You don't you don't really name your techniques as you go along when you're, no. when you're playing a song. 
listen, it's old school. The, te- the, the, the rudiments were invented for snare drum players marching up and down. That's a fact. To give him loads of different musical phrases to play. They're not necessary. They're not necessary to play the drums. They come out in your drumming because you're playing fluidity beats between singles and doubles with different dynamics. That's it. So what I'm saying is, if you, I'm closing down how much you practice, but defining what you should practice so that you actually get better because you're devoting more time to the foundation of drumming, singles and doubles. There isn't anything else. Every time you hear. Uh, watch a groove or hear a groove it's a makeup of singles and doubles that's very true and you're right those really were written for the snare drum I mean I would imagine that they helped the guy that played snare during the civil war battles but apart from that you know they, you're right I never looked at them as an actual distraction before I really thought that they were helping me put pieces in the foundation but you know what you're right it really is singles and doubles that's it and don't get me wrong I've never turned around and said to someone well He's learned rudiments and he's a great drummer. And yes, of course. I'm not saying it's not not the way to do it. What I'm saying is you can't play your doubles properly. You can't do your paradiddles properly. And the reason why you can't do paradiddles is because it's got a double in it. So five-stroke roll doesn't sound very good because the double's not good. It's all going back to singles and doubles. Right. And if you can't play them properly, how the, if, if your doubles are not very good, how are you supposed to play a seven-stroke roll properly then? You're still involving doubles. Mm-hmm. So... You've got to look at what, what's why can't I play that properly? Well, let's just break it down. Right, when you break it down, it's a combination of singles and doubles. And usually it's people's double stroke that's wrong. So for as long as your double stroke's wrong, whatever you put in that's got a double stroke in it isn't going to work, is it? It doesn't magically become great in that phrase when you can't play it on its own. Very true. I just never looked at it that way, but that's I'm, I'm going to have to let that sink in because that's that really changes the programming that I've I've been having for what 30 plus or well, 40 plus years now. Um, well listen, it was 2021 when this all came about. I started them practicing, obviously I, I could practice 3 or 4 hours a day just on singles and doubles. Mm-hmm. Just on that. And I got them, I mean I'm I'm known actually in the whole of Europe to probably have the the the, the best double strokes ever and they're loud as well very, very loud. You can't tell the difference between my singles and my doubles like machine guns. Wow. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. But I've done that because because I allocated all my practice time to those two things. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, if you keep on practicing something correct with good technique, it's going to get better. That's what time does. If you've got talent, it's going to get better, just that little bit sweeter and better because you've got talent. But Mainly, you're going to get better at those two things. That's why I never practice any of my uh, rudiments. And when I used to teach at the music colleges, I used to say to them, I don't practice rudiments, name me one. So they'd name one, and I'd just rattle it off. Bloody hell. But I said, no, I know the phrase of it, but my hands are so good on singles and doubles, it's only a phrase of that. Right. So I can play it. I think I owe you for a lesson. <laughs> so so how, how are these lessons working? Are you doing them over Zoom? Um, I'm doing a bit of both. Some people come and see me and some people will do it over Zoom. Okay. I've got the link to your Facebook uh, here in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. Is that the best way to connect with you for lessons? Yeah, just bang, bang, bang a message through on, on Facebook. And um, I'm always um, looking at that. So I'll get back to people sharp. 
Right. And obviously be patient with responses because you might be in a rehearsal. You might be, you know, you've got a lot of other stuff going on as well. So, but I, I'm sure you will get back to everybody and, and uh, help everyone you can. I'm very excited that you're offering that because I've seen a lot of these, uh, these rock master classes. I actually took one with Steve Morse uh, a couple of months ago, but uh, it, it's, it's really interesting to see how we're able to connect with the artists now where we couldn't do that before you guys were behind a shield. And uh, yeah. you know, there was there was no interaction. And now these days with uh, with the technology and the ability while everybody's slowed down with covid, uh, it's a really beautiful yeah. thing to be able to get this kind of information and have that direct. Uh, here's what what you're doing. Here's what I think you can improve on. I don't think it gets any better than that. No. And, and I Scott, I absolutely adore passing. Off. I call them the, the Gilbert Golden Secrets. Right. Because what they are is just readjusting people's brain prioritizing practice thoughts and that's all i do and and when people realize and get it that it's just singles and doubles right mm -hmm. look at the time that you're saving because you're going to get better and then the little thing why i'm playing the groove better well it just could be just down to literally posture literally where the snare drum sitting to in relation to your seat just tiny little things like that that they can't think about um and I know what it did to my playing, and I know that I got better, quicker, and so therefore I, my enjoyment and enthusiasm got quicker um, as a result of doing that. Right. Well, and, and, you know, it's just to be able to look at somebody and go, you know, if you just turn your wrist a little bit, you're going to have a lot more endurance. You're going to have a lot more power. I mean, those subtle things that we don't think about because we just start playing the way we play. And yeah. we don't we don't necessarily think about uh, like the dynamics of the positioning of our body or how we sit on the throne or how close the throne is to the snare. We just do whatever we do. And that's the way it goes. So to have somebody come in and go, OK, you need to move two inches back and you'll be able to to hit at a better angle and it'll it'll you know project better. Uh, those things make all the difference. But we just we just want to play. We don't really think about that. No, not at all. And certainly when you're learning, you don't because you haven't got the experience to think you don't think on that level. Right, exactly. People need the amount of time that I've had to I've had to sort out people's bass drum pedals. They've got a crap bass. No, you haven't. All these people to get precious about oh, I've got to have that bass drum. No, you haven't. Hang on a minute. All you've got to do there's three things that work a bass drum pedal, right? And then the the rest of it is down to your technique. The three things are how tight the spring is, how far back the beater is, and how far down the beater is. And those three things work the physics of how the ba a bass drum beater comes back and forward. So the rest of it is down to, so I can play on any bass. I, I don't care what pedal it is. I set it up and play it. And that's what you should be able to do. Your technique serves a purpose. It astounds me the amount of people that have got, haven't got a clue there and the ones that buy, the, buy sticks just because of well, what you bought the sticks for. It's the only thing you've got between you and it and the drums. Mm -hmm. As the sticks are not working for you. Man, the one you can't do this and you can't do that, the sticks are wrong for your hand size. Yeah, exactly. There, all those little details make all the difference. And I'm really glad that you're going to be able to help uh, a lot of people out with those techniques and just make a better generation of drummers. I want people to still not get frustrated with the drums, but flip it. It's such a wonderful feeling to get behind the kit and command a song and lay down a groove. And the more you love it, the more, you know, you put the work rate in. Exactly. It, it should be a joy. That's why we get into music, because it's it's fun. Yeah. You know, if you're not having fun with it, you're missing you're missing some element somewhere. And that needs to get corrected because you don't want to get discouraged and quit. No, that's right. 
Well, my my last question for you is you grew up in a time where you really learned a lot by playing live. There were a lot of opportunities uh, in those days where uh, you could perform uh, often. And nowadays, it seems like for drummers, they're really are, like getting a gig once a month, uh, if you're lucky, or, or maybe uh, a couple times a month. You really don't get to learn as much live as, as we did in the earlier days. How would how would you suggest a drummer really get comfortable when they don't have that ability? You mean in a li- in a live setting? Right. That's that's a tough one. I mean, the best the best way to do it is to, you know, I I always think you the best way is to um, record yourself. You can either record yourself video and playing or just the audio because you need feedback on what your performance is like because. How many times have your ears deceived you? I've known in recording sessions. Oh, I nailed that. Go in there and hear it back and it sounds crap. Or you think, oh, no, it's a ropey take. You go in there and suddenly you've nailed it. So it's very deceiving when you're living the moment. So you should always record yourself. But as far as live um, stuff's concerned, you've got to, unfortunately, there isn't a book on experience. And I think you've got to just, you know, the the more live gigs you do, the more experience you you, have. you get and certainly i do believe that everyone has to have their backside roasted it's the best way in which you learn is, is by getting you know putting yourself in the deep end. Mm-hmm. yeah those lessons you never forget no ever well russell thank you so much for coming on the show i'm wishing you guys the best with all these projects um, i'm really excited to hear uh, these songs that you're writing. I can't wait to hear the the, the next Uriah Heap album. Obviously, I will be reviewing that on the Uriah Heap podcast. Uh, d- definitely, I'm sure that we'll talk again. But in the meantime, please stay safe. Thank you for doing things that not just uh, are, are giving us things to enjoy, but you're also helping the next generation give us things to enjoy. And uh, there, there's really no better gift than those things that you're giving. Yeah, Scott, thanks very much indeed. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, we'll talk again soon. In the meantime, keep at it. Yep. Cheers, mate. Take care. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And he did another recent interview where he digs into his past a little bit more. I try not to replicate, you know, recent interviews that the artists have done because they've just talked about it. There's other places you can hear that. I want to dig into areas that they haven't really talked about. So, uh, you know, I try not to be redundant, but that the link to that interview that he did is also in the show notes. That's a pretty recent one. And um, just a great dynamic guy. I feel like I could have talked to him for hours more and still not discovered half the things that he's done. Uh, but that interview is uh, really interesting as well. So if you enjoyed this one, go listen to that one. And thank you guys for joining me for another episode of the Haskellcast podcast. Please remember to leave a rating or review on the podcast outlet of your choice. And we'll see you guys next week for another episode. Cheers. Cheers.